0: The Sage of New Hampshire series, by McRowland Book 3, Hunger Season. Chapter 20, Back Door, Part 2. Paul leaned against the barn wall, his eye to a crack between siding boards. There he is, he whispered. He doesn't walk around much, and doesn't come close to the barn. There's two guys loading the truck with the food from the main house. Think you or someone could imitate the voices of one of those guys? Something short like, hey, come in here, or or whatever. When he comes in, we jump him. Paul nodded. Martin asked some women to bring one of the blankets. They stood on wooden crates, carefully dragged to either side of the door. Assuming that we get him, Martin said, as he peeked between the boards, we'll need to get a substitute back outside before he's missed. You, back there, gray hoodie. Yes, you. You look to be about the same height and build as the guard. Come here. When we grab that guard, you put on his coat and hat, hold his gun like this. That's how he was holding it, Martin demonstrated. Keep your face toward the barn so they don't see who you are. The man didn't look happy at the nomination. Several people pushed him to the front. He realized it wasn't a request, but an appointment. Ready, Martin whispered to the women on the crates, and the others behind them with boards for clubs. They all nodded. The men loading the truck had just gone inside. They had about a half a minute to act. Hey, come in here, Paul said in a false baritone voice. Why, what's up? "'asked the man outside. "'He took only a couple of cautious steps toward the door. "'Paul looked at Martin, his eyes wide, saying, "'Well, now what?' "'Tell him there's a woman in taking her clothes off,' Martin whispered. "'Paul mouthed the word, "'What?' Martin motioned to just do it. "'Um, there's a woman in here, um, taking her clothes off.' "'No way,' said the man outside. "'Ha, ha, ha!' Paul faked a deep laugh. Fine. Stay outside, then. The hatch clicked. Everyone tensed up. What are you talking about? The guard said. He stepped over the doorframe. The women jumped off their crates, pulling the blanket over his head and torso. They dragged him off his feet. The people with boards pummeled the lumpy shape in the blanket until Martin held up his hand. The lump didn't move. Okay. Get his coat and hat off. Where is his gun? The reluctant appointee was decked out in short order by a crew of dressers. Martin draped the sling over the man's shoulder, pressed his hands onto the A.R. grip as he had seen the guard holding it, and pushed him out the door. Now remember, stand just like that with your back toward the house and truck. The man still had very wide eyes, but there was no time to renegotiate his contract. The two men from the house emerged with armloads of food and trudged toward the truck. Okay, said Martin. When they go back in, you guys all go out the back with Dustin's surprise party idea. I'm going to run over to the orchard store. He peeked through the crack of the not-quite-closed door. Okay, now. Martin bolted through the door, past the reluctant man, across the road, and tumbled into the deeper snow in the ditch. He could see beneath the truck, so proceeded until he saw legs appear. When they went back inside, he waded through the deep snow toward South Road. Once there, he tumbled into the deep ruts made by Kutch and his Humvee. Shots crackled from farther up the hill. What's going on up there, he wondered. He turned on his walkie-talkie, tuning it to the response team's action channel. He put in one earbud. Trees on the left. See them? It was Stuba's voice. They don't seem to be advancing, just shooting a lot. Everyone conserve your ammo. Take a shot if you get a clear one, but make every round count. Stockman, fire team in position. It was Charles's voice. Ready on your signal. Charles remembered their planning meeting at Jean's house. If a threat came up South Road, Bell Center and Wilson Hill companies would hold the center. Stockman's position was on the left, at the edge between the forest and the hayfields. They could act as a flanking force if needed. He could picture the Stockman guys crouched in the woods, armed with their new M4s, ready to advance. He wished he could have been with them, but the attackers had Margaret. He needed to be in that orchard store. After adjusting his white headdress, he slowly peeked over the edge of the rut, toward the farmhouse and the truck. No one was visible. He could still hear volleys of shots being fired, but couldn't see anyone. The rest of the attackers would be the response team's problem he had to get into that store. He crawled along the rut. When he slowly peeked up, he could see the store's windows. He was too close. If he could see the windows, they could see him. He backtracked. Another peek showed that he was in a better position. The windows were almost side-on to him. He tucked the carbine close to his chest and dive-rolled over the rut's top. He felt like a snow mole crawling through the knee-deep fluff. Navigating by glimpses of a stand of pines at the front of the store, he made his way to the side of the building. Men's voices came from inside, but not distinct words. As he crawled along the side of the building toward the back, hoping for a back door, the voices got louder. On the wall beside him was a plywood panel, painted white like the siding and hinged at the top. Martin could see the metal chimney jut out from the wall above him. A firewood door? He scooped the snow away so he could raise the hatch. Peeking through the narrow slit was fruitless. It was too bright outside and too dim inside. By the light the slit let in, he could see the back of a random pile of firewood. He couldn't see the top of the pile. He thought it might offer concealment and cover if he could get in unnoticed. He shut off his walkie-talkie. He needed to stay focused on the task at hand. I'm going to go see what they're doing, said one of the voices. After a few heavy footsteps, the old-fashioned doorbell tinkled. Hey, you could close the door, you know. You're letting me in all the cold air, Adam's voice whined. That sounded like the best opportunity Martin was likely to get. He raised the hatch and rolled in. He pulled the hatch closed behind him, but lay still. Had he gotten in unnoticed, he lay on the floor behind a pile of firewood. At his feet stood the old pot-belly stove. At his head stretched the store counter. Sticking out from the shelf below the counter was one of the handles of his two-man saw. So, that's the place Paul was stashing my saw, Martin thought. The doorbell tinkled again. "'Those idiots are so slow,' complained the first man. "'But I couldn't spare any more men to load the truck.' "'Yeah,' said the third man. But this gives us time to make sure that we get all this grog into the truck, too. i got to say, Adam, this was a good idea. Martin could hear the man slurp. One of them had a walkie-talkie that crackled to life. We can take the blue house. Totally take it. The reception was full of static. No, said the first man loudly. Do not take any houses. Just keep the heads down until we're done here. Big house, not much. Probably get lots of. The reception was scratchy and broken. Gonna rush it. Back door isn't. No! Shouted the first man. Hold your positions. They can't hear you, said the third man. Cheap walkies. They got no range. Bah! Said the first man. Heavy boots clomped to the wooden door. The doorbell tinkled again. Do not take any houses. "'Blue team! Come in! Blue team!' Martin peeked up slowly, between the counter and the pile of wood. He could see Adam and a man in a tan coat. They were seated at a heavy wooden table. Their backs were toward him. "'Looks like you were right about the stash they had here,' said Tan Coat. "'We'll be eating like kings now. No more waiting like dogs to be fed by those panty-wastes in town.' We'll show them who's an outcast and who isn't. <laughs> you know, Adam, when you first showed up at the compound, I had you figured as a total waste of food. But man, a truck with fuel, all those guns, <laughs> I do like your friends. Yeah, Adam said with a smug tone, I got my connections. And them farm people, <laughs> they owe me big time. Great tip on all this grog, too, said Tancote. It ain't scotch, but it's something with a little kick, and I ain't got a good buzz on for over a month. But I am now, and with a pretty barmaid, too. (laughs) Faster, woman, fill them bottles. Ain't got all day. Martin shifted his field of view slightly. In the back of the room, a large stainless steel vat stood on pipe legs. Chained to one of the legs was Margaret. Martin's heart leapt for joy. She was alive and apparently unhurt. If looks could kill, however, Adam and Tancote would be tiny piles of ash on the floor. Margaret slowly filled gallon jugs from a spigot near the bottom of the vat. Her wrists were zip-tied together and to a chain. The chain itself was zip-tied to one of the pipe legs. Adam laughed. <laughs> yeah, I wasted her double dealin' husband. Shot him dead. Yeah, showed him who's boss. Figured that now she's available. I might as well take her back for my own personal slave. Adam laughed heartily, but then sounded sullen. After Trish ran off, I needed something warm in my bed. Even if she's chained there, he resumed his laugh. Hey, woman. Tancoat slid his chair back and walked to the vat. Pour me up another glass of grog. Margaret took his glass and started pouring all the while keeping a wary eye on him. "'She's a little old for you, ain't she, Adam? Still gotta say she looks mighty fine.' Tancote pawed at Margaret's hair. She pulled away quickly. Martin could feel his arms and jaw muscles tense. He slowly moved his carbine into position. The man stood too close to Margaret for a shot. In the dim light an awkward angle, he wasn't confident in his aim. Oh, now, don't get all unfriendly-like, said Tancote. Slaves gotta learn manners. He moved in to force a kiss. Margaret headbutted him. The man recoiled back, wiped his lower lip across the back of his hand. He glanced at the spot of blood. Ho, ho, ho! Feisty, eh? Martin had just enough light to see his front sight silhouetted against the man's pinkish face. He could feel himself going into detachment mode. The oval of pink was simply a construction paper shape pinned to a backstop. "'I think I'll just take you for myself,' he ripped at Margaret's collar. Martin held his breath and squeezed the trigger. The report, indoors, was deafening. Margaret let out a yelp. Martin saw the man fall. Margaret looked shocked but unhurt. Martin quickly got to his feet in case Tancote needed a second shot. "'Martin?' Margaret gasped. Adam jumped to his feet and spun around. In a fraction of a second it took him to get his gun unslung off his back, Martin could see that Tancote was down and motionless. Martin fired a loose cannon shot high over Adam to keep him on a defensive. Martin ducked behind a pile of firewood. Adam tipped over the heavy table and took cover behind it. He took a few shots at Martin, all of them hitting high on the wall behind him. Martin knew Adam's wooden table wouldn't stop his carbine rounds, but he still dared not return fire. Margaret was several yards behind Adam. Martin planned to roll left and run behind the counter. It was little protection, but it would shift Margaret out of his line of fire. He imagined that he would use his two-man saw as a makeshift shield. Tempered steel might not slow down a five five six round, but it was certainly better than nothing. As he shifted to grab the saw handle, he could see Margaret tugging furiously at her chain. Adam fired twice, hitting the firewood. Martin peeked around the other side of the woodpile. Margaret stopped tugging at her chain. Instead, she spun around like a bent top, her arms over her head. The twisting snapped the zip-tie around the pipe leg. She was free, though her wrists were still zip-tied together. Screaming like a banshee, she came up behind Adam, Swinging her chain around and around over her head. Adam turned to look up just in time for the chain to slap across the side of his head. He fell like a sack of rocks. Martin clambered over the firewood. Margaret stood whipping the prostrate Adam over and over, putting her full weight and fury into each blow. Martin reached her and grabbed her arm. The rage trance broke. Hold on, Kit Kat! We need him alive! He pushed the hair out of her eyes. Oh, Martin, you're alive! She tried to hug him, but still had her wrists zip-tied together to the chain. Martin cut her free. She threw herself against him and held on tight. You're alive! You're alive! He said he killed you! I never thought I'd ever lose you, but he said that you were dead. He was going to— She pulled back. The fire of rage flared in her eyes again. She grabbed the chain off the floor and gave Adam one more wood-splitting vertical blow. The fire left her eyes. She threw herself into another tight hug. "'Oh, you stink, by the way,' she whispered into his ear. Her eyes were soft and bluer than he remembered. "'Yeah, I fell down again.' Her face turned serious. "'We have to get out of here before that other guy comes back.' She grabbed Adam's gun off the floor, dropped the magazine to check it, then rammed it back in. Martin checked out the windows. She ran back to Tancote to retrieve his gun. Manners, she muttered as she kicked the body. We need to tie Adam up, Martin said. I don't want him giving us any more trouble or getting away. Tie him up? With pleasure. Margaret grabbed a ball of twine from the counter. She wrapped her chain around Adam's neck. Martin held his wrists and ankles together behind his back while Margaret tied them tight to the chain. I hope these are too tight she muttered. The two of them crouched below the store windows to scout out their situation. Shots popped and cracked, closer than they had before. Maybe with all the gunfire out there, they didn't notice ours, Martin said. Someone's coming down the hill. Margaret pointed up the road. A dozen men, in loose order, were engaged in a fighting withdrawal. Martin could hear short bursts of automatic fire Charles and Tyler were taking advantage of the Mill Pond Gang's captured M4s. That guy over there is their leader, Margaret pointed to the tall man in camo. The tall man was shouting and pointing at the barn. The fake guard was no longer in his position. The truckloaders ran to the barn and threw open the door. From their wide-arm gestures, they were telling Camo Man that the barn was empty. Camo Man stomped and raged. He gestured for the truck to roll. He shouted at the men withdrawing down the hill. The truck pulled onto South Road, a few dozen yards from the orchard store. I think they're trying to run, Martin said. One of the attackers tumbled in the road. Another fell backward as he tried to climb onto the flatbed. man directed defensive fire at positions Martin couldn't see. man shook his fist and shouted something. Martin couldn't make out what he said, but the body language was defiant. The big diesel freightliner belched black smoke as it roared through the lower gears, fishtailing in the slippery ruts. Some of the stolen food slipped off the flatbed into the snow. The truck roared over the shallow rise, out of sight, back toward Nutfield. Then there was silence. Slowly, people emerged from their cover and gathered in the road. Martin and Margaret joined them. Hey, Simmons, Stubit shouted. About time you showed up. What do you mean? I got here first, Martin smiled. What took you so long? Looks like we've run them off, said Stuba. "Made 'em hurt for it, too. Oh, how bad are our losses, Martin asked. Oh, not as bad as theirs. They've got three dead up on the hill where they were trying to storm a house. Two more fell on the way down. Yeah, then there's these two here. You'll find two live ones tied up in the barn, said Martin. Maybe another couple behind the barn. There's another dead guy in the store, and Adam Dunnan. He's almost dead. Martin winked at Margaret. I think he'll make a good guest for Candace's radio show. Stuba laughed. (laughs) Not gonna miss that show. How badly did we get hurt? Martin asked. We took some hits, but none dead. Lenders took a hit in the same arm. He's really mad about that. Hooper took a nasty hit in the leg but they got the bleeding stopped, got a few with wood shrapnel in their faces from flying tree bark. By and large, though, our boys kept their heads down, as ordered, and let the other guys waste ammo. Paul walked over from the barn. Dustin was hobbling behind him, trying to keep up. Oh my God, Dustin! Margaret rushed to him. She held him at arm's length, giving him a motherly full body scan. Then she peeked beneath the bandages. That was so incredibly brave of you, and so incredibly stupid. They could have killed you. Don't you ever, Dustin interrupted. If it comes up again, I'm going to do it again. How much of the town farm's food did they get? Martin asked Paul. Mrs. Webster just did a quick inventory, but it looks like most of it. They didn't take the pine fries, but that's about all. We saw some fall off the truck, Margaret pointed. A pair of men were already at the site. Two boxes of canned goods was a pitifully small salvage. Oh dear, losing that much food means people aren't going to make it to spring. That guy in fatigue shouted that they'd be back, said Stuba. There's not much left to take, Dustin said. Maybe just to get even? They'll have a lot harder time of that if they try, said Stuba. He looked up at a man in a blue coat with an arm full of ARs. How many did we pick up? he shouted. Seven so far, shouted the man. Two more here. Margaret held up Adam's AR. Martin waved Tancoat's AR. Paul had two more from the barn, Martin added. Maybe a couple out back, too. Stuba chuckled. <laughs> A dozen shiny new ARs will put a lot more sting in our fire teams, especially after adding those three M4s we captured from the Millpond gang. Men had begun dragging the dead attackers to the corner of the town farm property. Now yeah, we can get them later, shouted Stuba. You two go down to Scott's farm. Help them out. We've got maybe a half a dozen of them as prisoners, Martin said. Oh, what are we going to do with them? "'Sounds like we don't have enough food for our own people now, let alone prisoners.' "'One of the guys we tied up in the barn was getting all kinds of chatty,' said Paul. "'The others won't say a thing.' "'Chatty about what?' "'Oh, about how Adam and Trish got to the outcast's compound at the edge of Nutfield. "'Apparently he promised them a big bunch of food if they'd let him in. "'Adam radioed to somebody on our good radio.' And the next day, a bunch of guys in black jumpsuits showed up on a big white flatbed. They had boxes of rifles and ammo, uh, but no food. The guys in black said that the outcasts could find all the food they wanted at Cheshire's Town Farm, and that they should go and take it. It looks like they succeeded, said Margaret. She held one of the salvaged boxes. Not enough here to get a family of four through until spring, let alone everyone at the farm. Yeah, continued Paul. Chatterbox said the day before they planned to raid us is when the blizzard hit. They were all stuck and digging out like everyone. Then the road was miraculously cleared, and the raid was back on again. Sounds like this chatty guy would make a good guest on Candace's show, too, quipped Martin. Others laughed, but Margaret suddenly looked serious. Sounds, she said. Huh, everyone be quiet. She pulled the hair off her ear. Listen. At first, Martin heard nothing. A moment later, though, he could hear it. The sound of a big diesel engine laboring up a distant hill. They're coming back? Dustin asked no one in particular. They're coming back! Dubit shouted to the men behind him. He waved his arms. Everyone, get a gun behind some cover. You two, over there. You, behind that tree. Oh, jeez, they must have just rounded up reinforcements, said Martin. He grabbed Margaret by the hand. They quickly waded through the snow to get behind the corner of the store. Just as he settled into a kneeling position, a sinking thought occurred to him. Hey, Stuba, all our teams are down here. I know. We ought to be able to handle them, said Stuba. But what if they blow right past us and drive into town? Who's going to stop them from raising hell? Oh, God, Stuba stood up. And barked directions into his radio, the mounted units could get to town soonest, but had limited firepower. He called for North Pond Company to head to the center of town, knowing that it might take him an hour to get there. What if we drop a tree across the road? Martin asked Margaret. He ran into the store and pulled out his two-man saw from behind the counter. Come on, he waved Margaret to follow him. Martin studied the pines for a moment. two of them were too big for a quick cut. One of them was too small. It wouldn't stop a truck. He patted the trunk of a medium-sized pine. This one. It already leans out over the road. Margaret took up her position on the opposite side of the tree. Martin swung the big saw around. Margaret caught the wooden handle and dug in her feet for a side stance. They positioned the saw on the back side of the tree. No need for a notch. Just a felling cut, Martin said. He pulled. Margaret pulled. Flakes of brown bark, then soft yellow sawdust, streamed out of the cut in alternating plumes. The two of them moved as if one being. The saw blade rang with each slice. The sound of the diesel engine grew louder. Back and forth, back and forth. The saw had cut three-quarters of the way through the pine. Black smoke appeared over the rise. Positions, everyone, shouted Stuba. Wait for my signal. People knelt behind cover. Rifles raised to their shoulders. The pine began to creak and fall. The truck crested the rise. The pine fell across the road. Branches absorbed into the snow. That's not the same truck, said Margaret. It's blue. Maybe they have other trucks, said Martin. Get back behind the tree, quick. The big Kenworth locked up its brakes. It slid into the fallen tree barricade. The bumper pushed the pine tree several feet, plowing up a pile of snow ahead of it before coming to a stop. Two dozen rifles were trained on the cab. For a long moment, no one moved. The diesel idled softly. The driver put both hands out his window. The passenger did the same. Martin stood and walked toward the truck, taking cover behind the larger pines. What if the box trailer was full of armed outcasts? Simmons? asked the driver. Martin recognized the voice, but couldn't place who it belonged to. He stepped part way out from behind a tree. Yeah? Uh, that is you, said the driver. Hey, it's me, Malcolm. Uh, no, really? Come see. Malcolm? Martin's mind was still digesting things. He was in a truck. Did Operation Longbow succeed? If so, was Susan all right? Was she with him? Was there anything to movie curses? You know him? asked Margaret. Well, kind of, Martin said. He's the guy we transported to Keene to help with that truck convoy thing, remember? Oh, yeah. But does this mean that it worked? Yes, ma'am, it did, said Malcolm. Hey! Martin shouted to all of the men crouching behind trees. It's okay. He's not one of them. "'Do you mean that this truck is full of food?' Margaret asked, as if the answer would be no. "'Yes, ma'am. Ziggy, why don't you go unlock the back so she can have a look-see? "'Don't move sudden-like, though, Zig. Hand's always visible. Uh, Folks look a little jumpy here.' Ziggy, a skinny young man wearing clothes two sizes too big for him, nodded knowingly. He slowly stepped down, into the snow, hands up. Margaret had already waded through the snow to the back of the truck. Martin wanted to ask if Susan was in the truck, but it felt too awkward. Uh, Operation Longbow actually worked? Yeah, better than I thought it would, if not a total success. We got 47 trucks across the bridge, each assigned to a different spot in the state. I took the one for Cheshire, figured I'd say hi to... So, what about Susan? Martin had to ask outright. Malcolm looked away, evasively. Well, we uh, got down to Northfield uh, with little trouble. She had a route over the hill scouted out just in time. The bridge needed some repairs, but they had that rigged in time for the big night. It seemed to take forever, you know, that first night. Trucks had to cross one at a time, no lights, and go really slow. The old bridge couldn't take much stress. Martin grew impatient with the peripheral backstory. Yes, yes, but where is she? Where is she now? Uh, I don't know. How can you not know? Is she okay or what? Uh, I don't know, because she was on the other side of the river when the mass troops arrived. The what? A platoon of mass guards running up the river road. They found out you were crossing the river? Yeah, I don't know how exactly, Uh, but they did. My truck was number 47 across, Malcolm said gravely. I waved for Susan to run across the bridge. She was still on the west side. When the shooting started, she waved me on and ran back to the woods. I floored it and headed up to the border before the guards caught me and Ziggy. You left her alone in the woods with mass troops closing in? Martin was outraged, but part of him realized that Malcolm had no particular feelings, confused or otherwise, regarding Susan. She was just another cog to him. Nonetheless, Malcolm looked embarrassed. Yeah, there was nothing I could do, he pleaded. The troops were on the east side. She'd never get across the bridge and past them. But no, she's not in the woods by herself. charon and some of the other guys were on the west side, too. charon's tough as nails. Yeah, Susan's tough, too. I'm sure she'll be okay. Oh, this is great, Margaret beamed as she rushed up beside Martin with a bag of flour in her hand. The trailer really is full of food. Of course... One semi-full of food isn't going to fill everyone's bellies. But this is way more than the town farm lost. There's probably enough here for everyone else in town to get a little, too. This isn't a lot. It'll be a lean couple of months until the snows melt and things start getting green. But I'll bet we have just enough. She had a wide smile and happy eyes. Martin hadn't seen her happy eyes in a long time. They always made him smile. He smiled at their prospects for the future, too. The feds' attempt to starve and frighten New Hampshire with a siege had failed. The confessions of Candace, Adam, and the other pawns would expose the feds for what they were, petty dictators. With spring would come fresh greens, calving season, baby chicks, and planting. The outage could well last another year or more, but with a whole growing season to prepare, they wouldn't be facing another lean winter like this one had been. Several men pulled the fallen pine out of the way. Others shoveled a pair of ruts to help the big truck make the turn onto Town Farm's road. Many eager hands stood out in front of the house, ready to help ferry the precious cargo inside. "'Oh, and uh, there's several stacks of seed corn back there,' Malcolm said. Uh, "'I'm supposed to give those to a man named Landis, so he can give them to the right farmers for planting.' "'See?' Margaret tugged at Martin's arm. "We've even got a head start on Spring." Malcolm dug around in the truck's cab. "She was supposed to ride in my truck, but well, that didn't work out. She was going to give you this." He held out his arm. In his hand was a small can. Martin took it and laughed out loud. "A can of Vienna sausages?" Margaret asked. Hell, "Yeah. Well, whatever. She did all right, I got to say." Margaret put her arm tightly around Martin's arm and watched the truck roll slowly past them. She looked up and smiled at him. Thanks to her, I think we're going to be all right. Martin put his arm around her waist. Yeah, I think we are. That's the end of Hunger Season, book three in the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland.